Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, but not everyone set free remains free. And that's why Paul was writing to the Galatians. False teachers were teaching that salvation depends on our own good works. So Paul must remind them that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Now, let's join Pastor Ross in our verse-by-verse study through this most liberating letter. All righty, we are back. We are ready to dive back into Galatians chapter 2. We are trying to finish up a chapter each week of study. And so that is the goal, but let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we study through these passages that speak of our freedom in Christ, we pray that we'd be able to understand and put these truths into practice. Lord, in this book, Galatians It's the book that we go to when we're feeling like failures, when we feel like we can't do anything right, when we're getting down on ourselves and beating up ourselves, Lord, because we just can't seem uh, to be all that you want us to be. Galatians reminds us we're in Christ. We're joined to you. Our righteousness depends upon Christ, and we're saved by faith alone by grace alone, by Christ alone. So remind us of these great truths that set our hearts free from all condemnation because it's not up to us, it's all up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, authority, if it's gonna have any meaning at all, it has to be legitimate, right? So if a stranger walks into a classroom and hands out a test and threatens to fail everybody if they don't do well on it, you know, no worries, only the teacher uh, who the school placed in that position and delegated that authority has the right to do that. The neighbor across the street can't discipline your children when they're acting out in the cul-de-sac there because that right is reserved to those who have that authority, and that would be the parents. And so phony police officers also, they wouldn't have any authority to pull you over or to command you to do anything because they're not the real deal. So in order for authority to mean anything at all, it has to come legitimately. It has to be appropriately delegated uh, or really, it's got to be the real deal or, or all bets are off. And so this is precisely what Paul's opponents, a.k.a. wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, are hoping will be the case. These are the false teachers who have infiltrated the churches there in Galatia. And they have uh, become the bane of Paul's existence and ministry, really, as they try to move in and wrestle away the congregations, away from founding pastor Paul, and away from founding pastor Paul's theology that we are justified by grace alone. And so they, as chapter 1 told us, are these heretics who are throwing people into confusion 
as they are perverting the gospel and teaching a different gospel, which Paul says, of course, there is no different gospel. There's only one gospel. So they're preaching a works-based um, salvation, that Jesus is fine. They were fine with that. They would call themselves Christians. These uh, Judaizers is the name that Paul gives them. Uh, it's only used once in Galatians, but it's to describe somebody who's, who's bent on making someone Jewish, a Christian even, who has Christ. Then they were recommending or mandating, I should say, that you had to uh, do, you had to keep the Jewish rituals and laws and customs in order to be saved. It was kind of like a Christianity 3.0. It's an upgrade. You know, they came through and saying, Jesus is fine, but you guys have to get busy working. And so what they were, their strategy to undermine, uh, was to undermine Paul's authority. Uh, they were saying he's a wannabe, you know, he's not the real deal. He's an, he's the apostle imposter. And they were saying, unhitch from Paul and this cheap grace thing, all you got to do is believe, come on. You know, we've got the true gospel. You believe in Christ and then you work and you work hard. And uh, that was their thing. And, and sadly, it was an attractive kind of um, gospel because people really don't want to feel poverty-stricken before God. They want to feel like, hey, I'm not worthless. I know I'm not helpless and hopeless, as the scriptures say we are. Human nature would rather come to the table with something to offer, like Cain, who said, look at what I can do. Look what I can bring to you. And, and the Lord rejected that because he was told it won't be from the fruit of your works or your skills or your uh, good deeds. It'll be through the blood of a sacrifice. And so, you know, they said, if you want to be saved, accept Christ and become Jewish. And how cool would that be? <laughs> And so they thought it would be really cool, and they were starting to do it. Now, so the Holy Spirit's strategy here in, in chapter 1 and 2 is the truth of Paul's testimony that he was indeed called by God. And so uh, the remedy for the false and the lies is the truth of the situation, that he was called and commissioned by God, uh, and the Apostle Paul is telling the story that the original 12 uh, disciples, the apostles, really had nothing to do. They didn't lay their hands on him and uh, commission him. His calling superseded even uh, the apostolic authorities there of Peter, James, and John. So now we're going to pick up again. He's not finished uh, defending himself with his testimony that the Holy Spirit is using to show that this man is the real deal. And when he speaks about this gospel, faith alone, grace alone, by Christ alone, he has the authority from God and it's the real gospel because he's the real deal. And that's the point the Holy Spirit is making through having Paul give his testimony. So we're picking up here in chapter two with the close of that testimony, the first 10 verses will finish that testimony up, which is a defense of his apostolic authority. And if you're just joining us, all you missed about the testimony really was that uh, he said, I was 
persecuting the church and anything to do with the name of Jesus and Christ appeared to me and called me. Uh, Paul went into Arabia for three years and then after the Lord really dealt with him and really clarified the gospel to his heart and mind three years alone without the apostles, he came back and made a a brief two-week meet and greet with James, Jesus' half-brother, and Peter. And they only spent two weeks. And then he went back to his hometown and began ministry. And then he uh, was in full-time ministry there for years. Uh, That's where we left off. He came back into ministry from the desert, full of the Spirit, full of signs and wonders, full of the authority as a bona fide apostle of God, called by God the Father and sent by Jesus Christ. He picks up his testimony now in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. 14 years later from getting saved, I went up again, second time, to Jerusalem. First time 14 years earlier was just for two weeks. Now he wants to tell about something that happened 14 years later after he's already been ministering all over the Roman Empire. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus, the Gentile, along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, a a Gentile man who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised to become Jewish. Like the false teacher said, unless you're circumcised, you will never be saved. Even though he was a Greek. So I have this Greek man along. He's not compelled. And he's with Peter, James, and John. Verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks, came into the congregations to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves again. Hey, you got to become Jews. Verse 5. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And so let's dive in now. Note takers, verses one through four here before us, one through five, I should say. Uh, No compromise, freedom in Christ. Uh, He will sum up the book of Galatians in chapter five and verse one when he says, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow yourself to be entangled again in a yoke of slavery. And then there's, in this context, it's adding to the gospel works that something depends on me to keep my salvation. Uh, But there are, as I said last time, many ways to get all enslaved again. Christ wants us to be joy-filled and free, and that's why he came who the sun sets free is free indeed, and Satan is busy 24-7 trying to enslave us. If he can't have you, he definitely can't have you back, and he can't if you were really saved. One thing he can do is rob you of your joy if you let him, if you believe the lies, if you cooperate with him, instead of taking every thought captive and make it obey Christ. And so he was pretty busy saying, hey, you know, it's not just grace, It's not that Jesus did everything. You gotta be busy too. So he said, get these Judaizers, we're saying, get Jesus and then get very busy. Get kosher, get a menorah, 
Light the candles on the right day. Get a yarmulke. Put it on your head on all the holy days. Get a prayer shawl. And men, get circumstanced. (laughs) Not only that, get circumcised. Or you cannot be saved. That's what they were preaching, Acts chapter 15. Uh, let, Let us see that. And so... The Gentile Christians were enamored. The word is bewitched by it. They loved it. They gobbled it up. Who wouldn't want to feel superior to everybody else? Oh, you eat that? Oh, I don't because I'm holier than you are. Oh, you don't celebrate this day? Oh, don't you know it's a new moon festival and the Jews were commanded by God to do this? And so now as Christians... I'm a cut above if I keep the Sabbath or I keep a holy day or if I do this and do that. You know, rule keepers always feel superior uh, and have private disdain for those who enjoy Christian liberty. And it was the same back then as it is today. So the false teachers were saying, get Jewish. And Paul's all, get real. Are you kidding me? Uh, Now, He's saying we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. So let's dive in 14 years after he experienced that encounter in Acts chapter 9, where head-on collision with the living, risen Lord, he was given a a commission to go preach to non-Jews out in the Roman Empire, and that he did. And so two things to note here in his second visit here. Uh, first of all, his companions, who did he take? He took a nice Jewish boy, Barnabas, with him. And every time you read about Barnabas, something good is happening, except in this one chapter. And so uh, the other important person on this trip to headquarters, Jerusalem is the Jewish Supreme Court was there. Uh, Many of them got saved. Uh, There were a lot of good Jewish Christian men who were leading the church uh, from Jerusalem. And so this is an important place to be. He's got Titus there. And Titus is the quintessential convert from the pagan world. And he is the evidence of the gospel that is freely preached to everybody, whoever you were and are, whatever you were doing. If you were a woman, if you were a man, if you were black, if you were white, if you were a pagan, or if you were a Jew. It was all the same. It was one gospel now. And here's Titus, who, who has the same faith, has the same moral transformation, and the same speaking in tongues as the spirit-filled Jewish Christians. And so he was right there standing there. And so that was pretty wise to bring him to this little gathering. And the second thing that's important about this second trip to uh, Jerusalem is that uh, the purpose. The purpose was uh, he got a revelation. So the Holy Spirit somehow uh, let Paul know that he needed to go, and for the sake of the false doctrine that was seemingly coming from Jerusalem, and part of it did come from Jerusalem with some of those Jews who just couldn't let go of Moses and all of the commands and all of that, even though they were Christians. So they were coming to the pagan churches and saying, hey, hold on, we're not through, and we're not done with Moses yet. And so um, 
the purpose wasn't that they uh, that Paul uh, wasn't summoned to go up there for an interrogation, and he didn't go there for their endorsement. But God made it clear, "I want you to go up." So when Paul arrives, he lays out the gospel that he's been preaching to Peter, James, not James Zebedee. James Zebedee is already with the Lord. He had been beheaded in Acts chapter 12. When we say Peter, James, and John now, we mean Peter, James, the half-brother, who is the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 15, and John, Zebedee's son. And so Peter, James, and John, Paul takes him to a back room. It's a, there are a couple things he wants you to see. A, it was private. So he, he went, it wasn't a big conference, it wasn't a big denominational get-together. He went there and he said, this, he might as well have just preached Romans 4, 5, 6, and 7, and just said, this is what I'm preaching, this is what's happening out there, and the world is being turned upside down, and he did that. And then he says uh, there, uh, I did it privately, I preached to them, I showed them my doctrine, and then he said, for fear I would be running my race in vain, not that Paul was, uh, might have been wrong about the gospel, that they may have been wrong about the gospel. Because if Peter, James, and John weren't preaching a grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel, what will that do to all the New Testament churches, the 20 New Testament churches that he started all over the world? That would really shoot a hole right in the side of the boat. And uh, all of that effort, he says, uh, would have been hindered and what a disastrous impact on his work. And so he needed to know that they're not preaching you know, all this Jewish nonsense to these Gentile believers. And the word Gentile only means nations. It just means not Jewish. That's all it means. And so Peter, James, and John, uh, we're on board. He goes on to say, by faith alone, justification by faith alone, as evidence, verse three, uh, that Titus, though, was, though he was not a uh, circumcised Jew, uh, he was not pressured or mandated by Peter, James, and John and all the elders at Jerusalem Council. They did not compel him, though he was a Gentile, to be circumcised, which the false prophets were saying, without that, you're not going to heaven. So his case in point is, look, look we had a Gentile with us at the conference there and nothing uh, came of that. So the evidence is that they were on board. And by the way, verse four, he says, this whole matter became an issue because the false teachers and the words there in verse four snuck into the congregation to get an up close look at all the excitement, the success, all these churches were happening and all the synagogues were kind of, you know, 12 people here, 14 people here. And then a mega church of these Christian, former pagan, idolatrous uh, men and women. And they snuck in. They came down from Jerusalem. What's going on here with this Apostle Paul and this justification by grace stuff? And they wanted to spy it out, he said. So they came in. They snuck into the congregation. So oh, praise God, we're believers too. And then when Paul left, 
and was gone and preaching in other places. They said, oh, by the way, you know, it's Saturday. You guys, what are you doing? It's a, let us show you how to keep the Sabbath so that you can be saved and that kind of thing. And so la, the big deal was circumcision. Now, the Cliff Notes version on circumcision, because it was important, very important. God directed anyone without it that they would be excluded from the congregation of his people. Now, God told Abraham in Genesis 17, just for context with circumcision, that circumcision for males was a sign of his covenant with his people. And it was a very powerful and clear statement, prophetically speaking, a foreshadow of what the New Testament concept and what the New Testament calls being born again. This is what it means. That's what it meant. So in Romans chapter four, Paul says, Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was 90, 100 years old, and Sarah couldn't have children when she could have had children, and now she's even too old to have had children, even if it were possible, but it was not. And God said, I'm going to bring life. I'm going to do something supernatural. I'm going to do something that man cannot do. I'm going to breathe life. And he alone made life happen uh, in order to become children of God. This is what circumcision meant. You had to become children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will. You'd have to be born of God. You'd have to be born again from above by the Holy Spirit. First, uh, John chapter one and verse 13. So in the old covenant, he's saying, there's some laws. You're gonna try to keep them, but you will never come to know me. You'll never be my child. You'll never be reconciled to me by keeping commands. You will only be reconciled to me if I intervene and bring life to you, you cannot do it. That's what circumcision meant. It was a sign. And that sign was fulfilled when people believe the gospel, trust in Christ, and they're born again, and the Holy Spirit cuts into their hearts through the sin nature and circumcises their hearts and puts new life in them and calls them uh, forth from death into life. And the new sign... The ordinance is not circumcision, but it's baptism. Because at baptism, you're saying what circumcision was saying is, is that I was dead and God had to raise me to life. And so that's really the new ordinance is not circumcision, but baptism really corresponds. So once uh, the sign, once you reach your destination, you don't need the sign anymore. The sign was pointing to new birth, God's intervention, so that you can be born twice. That's the meaning of circumcision. It was pointing forward to being born again. And so the Jews came around and said, we want to go backwards to the old sign. And Paul was saying that is not necessary. Later in chapter 6, Paul's going to say, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. 
Now, continuing on to back to the story, when these Judaizers, these wolves in sheep's clothing, who had snuck in, he said, we didn't give in to them for a moment. He says, not even a second, verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. You know, back in those days, men would die for truth. They died for, to stand up for the truth of the gospel. They went to their graves. They had their heads removed because they stood for truth. And Paul's just saying, hey, I'm going to take a stand here. One writer said this, nothing robs you of the joy of salvation like the false notion that it depends on you and your effort. The only work God requires of any Christian is the work of entering his rest. That is the only work. And it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to not trust in our own heart, but not lean on our own understandings and all of our ways to acknowledge him. And he will direct our paths. He continues on and wraps up his testimony now in 6 through 10. Let's take a look at that. As for those who seem to be important there at the meeting in Jerusalem with Peter, James, and John, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the whole world outside of Israel, Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was work at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle equal to Peter, to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. James, Peter, and John, those reputed, had the reputation to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so we've left no compromise, really, verses one through five, and now no Favoritism, no favoritism. Now, so here in these verses, we're going to see the difference between the fear of the Lord and the fear of men, right here as we start off. Paul's language here describing the, the holy headquarters with Peter, James, and John, and all the other elders. There, there are a lot of very influential, very holy, uh, very powerful people at this meeting. And here's what he says. It's almost shocking, and it sounds a little disrespectful and derogatory, considering that he's describing Peter, James, and John. And he says, and it's most certainly not disrespectful. The Judaizers who came in to his churches loved to exalt and exaggerate the influence of the 12. Paul wasn't... Uh, they love to say Paul wasn't one of the originals. Peter, James, and John, and all of those guys, they're the real deal, but Paul's an imposter, right? So he, here's what, and they said, they made a big deal of, 
of the original 12. And Paul said, listen, I met them. And guess what? I'm not starstruck. He said, yeah, I met Peter, James, and John. They didn't add anything to my ministry. They didn't say, hey, you left this out. Hey, yeah, you're not, you're not saying enough of this. They didn't amend. They didn't modify. They didn't trim. They didn't do anything because I had the gospel. Why? Because I'm an apostle too. He does not saying that. But the Holy Spirit is enabling him to tell the story in such a way that we, the listeners, can go, oh, my word. They could learn us something from the Apostle Paul, and well, they will to hear. And so he says, unlike my, det my detractors, I'm not starstruck. I didn't go there and go, oh, Christian celebrities are, you, you know. And so many people are like that. And in uh, Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, who's a Navy SEAL, he's a centurion, he's like a Navy SEAL kind of guy, when he hears that Peter, the, the Peter, the apostle Peter is coming into his house. He throws himself down before Peter and, quote, worships him. Peter helps him to his feet and says, man, stop it. I'm a man just like you. But there was a lot of this Peter, James, and John thing, and Paul wasn't afraid to give them proper respect and honor. It was a privilege to be there and meet them, but he said, you know what? At the end of the day, they didn't add anything to my message. In fact, I had to correct them. That's coming up. And so he says... Um, there are a lot of famous names there, he says in verse 6. They seemed very influential in all of that, and those, verse 9, were reputed to be pillars and all of that. Whatever the case, he said, I didn't get too impressed by, I don't get too impressed by social status, especially of Christians, because the only Christian celebrity is Jesus. Oh, my word, with these, the, these spotlights and platforms and album covers. Look at me, how beautiful I am. Oh, come on, folks. Let's just point to Jesus, man. And so Paul said, you know, I love uh, uh, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord speaks to Samuel's heart and says, it's one of Jesse's boys is going to be the next king. And he has them parade by and Eliab. They're all good looking guys, but Eliab's a cut above. He's like taller than everybody. He's more handsome than everybody in the room. And he struts by and he goes, the, and Samuel thinks in his heart, Oh, there he is. Look at that guy. He's the most handsome. He's the tallest. He's the most buff. Now, come on. God's got to pick him, right? Amen? Amen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Moving on. And the Lord says, don't judge by his appearance, Samuel, or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the hearts. And that's why Peter, uh, Paul says, you know, I can show respect for them, but you know what? I didn't get overly impressed. I just don't get that way with anybody because it's Christ's blood who saves and it's the Holy Spirit who gifts. So if somebody's got a wow gift, I praise God because it's God who gave him the gift. That's not the guy. 
The guy's gifted. Where did he get the gift? He received it. It has nothing to do with him. So Paul is not uh, wowed by the guy because he's wowed by the God who gave the gift to the guy. Amen. I need a louder amen. Or I'm going home and I'm getting my jammies on. I'm getting some hot chocolate and I'm going to watch TV. <laughs> that was good. All right, he says, I showed them respect, of course. Uh, and then he was happy that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So it's not an aloof kind of thing. Uh, and the right hand of uh, fellowship here. He says two things happened. One I already talked about. They had uh, nothing to add to the message. They didn't censor it. They didn't add anything. On the contrary, it says there in verse 7, look at it. He says, on the contrary, they were impressed what God was doing through me and the ministry team with the Gentiles. So, verse 8, we concluded that God was calling Peter and the team there in Jerusalem to the Jews. You guys got the whole nation of Israel. Have fun. I'm going out to the Roman Empire, and I'm going to get busy bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's who I am. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he says, when the Holy Spirit confirmed and they recognized the powerful things that God was doing, the big three, Peter, James, and John, officially welcomed me and Barnabas with the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship means that they extended to them the solemn act of partnership, signifying acceptance and agreement and trust. To this day, 2,000 years later, we will make a partnership and we'll say, shake on it. That's exactly what they did 2,000 years ago. And so Peter, James, and John said, they heard the gospel he preached. They saw Titus. They heard the stories. They felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they said, welcome, officially. But Paul's, Paul's point, the Holy Spirit's point is, he's already been doing this 14 years. He didn't get approved down by the apostles. The apostles now have approved and recognized what God has already commissioned and done through the apostle Paul. And that's the whole point of this testimony here. And so he says, the only thing they asked was that we remember the poor. And he said, yeah, been there and done that. We're already. And the twist about this is they're like, hey, you guys don't forget about the poor. Paul was already taking Gentile offerings for the poor people in Jerusalem. So the very thing, the funny twist of the story is, is that the offering was going to come from the Gentiles to the poor there. And there, it's just a, a wonderful little thing. Now, the, the, the gospel of grace can go forward now, but not without some challenges from the most unsuspected sources. Here we go. Moving on. Verses 11 through 16. Now, now he's telling a story. <laughs> when Peter came to Antioch, a different place in time, that is modern-day Turkey on the, on the border of Syria and Turkey, uh, southeast, I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, Pastor James in Jerusalem, certain Jewish men, <clears throat> he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the Jewish group. Verse 13, the other Jews in the whole church joined him in his hypocrisy with Peter leading the way so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, Peter, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you're forcing Gentiles to sit over there and follow Jewish customs like second-class citizens? I added a little bit there. Verse 15. Now he's going to go into some explanation. Sometimes it gets a little uh, complicated, but he says, we who are Jews by birth and not so-called Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law and being kosher and sitting separately from our, our, our Gentile Christian friends. Because by observing the law and doing those kinds of things, no one will be forgiven or pardoned or acquitted. But we're justified. All right, let's look at this. No compromise, no favoritism, no easy road. So yeah, it's easy to live in freedom but not always easy to stay free, asked the apostle Peter, right? And so exhibit A, the pillar, Peter, whoops, the big whoops, even the right-hand man of Barnabas caved in and went astray under pressure. So what a nice way for the Holy Spirit to show the Galatians and everybody else the authority of Peter the authority of Paul to bring a public rebuke to Peter, the quintessential apostle of apostles. Is there anybody more distinguished in the entire Bible, in the Gospels, than Peter? For even for all his impulsivity, he's still the man. And here's a guy who stands up and rebukes him publicly. Wow. Uh, Paul is a heavyweight. And so the confrontation here's got strong language here. He says, I confronted him to his face because he clearly was blowing it big time. The word is to be really condemned in, in the sense of doing the wrong thing. Now, This fall of Peter's terrible thing that was happening, and had it continued, it would have wreaked havoc on all of the churches. Uh, But it was so unnecessary and so easily could have been avoided because Peter had learned this lesson a long time ago. And uh, you'll remember in Acts chapter 10, Uh, The Lord spoke to him about clean and unclean and kosher and the separation between all the good Jews and all the needy Gentiles, right? So in Acts chapter 10, this is how it went down. Peter's in, in a place called Joppa by the sea on a rooftop. He's having his quiet time. He gets a little hungry. 
Lunch is being prepared. He starts to smell it, right? And so the Lord says, Peter, you're feeling sweepy. <laughs> he falls into a trance. Uh, he sees heaven open and a sheet descending. And it says, with all sorts of yummy critters inside. Four-footed creatures, reptiles. Reptiles. And birds. And a voice says, he's hungry. And the voice says, Peter, open hunting season, man. Kill. Dress it, barbecue it, and eat it. And Peter says, three times this happened. Peter says, no way, man. I have never eaten anything unclean. And God says, please, stop calling things unclean, which I've made clean. And it happens three times because he's Peter. <laughs> now, meanwhile, God... God commands, meanwhile, God commands a nice Gentile guy who's also a Navy SEAL, the, the guy I mentioned before, Cornelius. He's a centurion, a Roman guard. And uh, he's a believer in the Lord. And he, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit tells him to send for Peter, tells him where he's at, and says, go get Peter. He's going to bring you an important message. And so they send some Gentile guys to Peter's house. And he's like, the spirit says, hey, go downstairs. There's some guys here to see you. Listen to what they have to say. So Peter goes downstairs, and the Gentiles from Cornelius' house are there and are inviting Peter to come up to Caesarea and, and bring a message. And so Peter goes up with them the next day, and he goes into Peter's, uh, Cornelius' house, Peter, the apostle Peter. It's standing room only. They're packed, all these goyim in Hebrew, all these non-Jewish people. But Peter's not even supposed to go in the house. But Peter goes in the house, and Cornelius says, throws himself down and all of that, and then he gets up and he says, hey, God, an angel sent by God told us, go get you because you've got a message for us, so here we are, we're all ears. Peter looks around, and he remembers the vision, and God's saying, could you please stop calling unclean things that I've made clean? Here's a house full of seekers of God who happen to be non-Jews, who Peter would be calling, oh, they're unclean Gentiles. Oh, he says, aha, I got it. And he preached justification by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. And he got it. I gotta stop with this Jewish Gentile, female, male, black, white, rich, poor. It doesn't matter. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Now, amen. Well, old habits die hard. And pride goes down, but not without a fight. And so it's easy there when, you know, he's preaching the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they're all prophesying and speaking in tongues, and, oh, isn't this great? And afterwards, let's have pork chops and applesauce. It was wonderful. And he spent the night there. You're not supposed to do that either. And now he's all cool. It's easy when you feel the presence of God and, and God's there and all of that. But fast forward the tape, and here's what happens. He says, here's what happened. It's right before you. He said, we were at this church in Antioch. 
right? So Peter comes up from Jerusalem. He came up to preach to the Gentile church there, to serve, to minister, and all of that, and, and complete with Gentile food and Gentile customs and Gentile people there. And Peter's cool at first, and then there's a knock on the door, it says, okay? So certain men came from Jerusalem, these haughty Hebrews. They came in, and they insisted that the tables be separated, the food be different, and kosher, even the tableware. They're not allowed to eat with forks and knives that have been in contact with anything not kosher. And so they start demanding, saying, you're not going to eat that bacon, are you? You're not going to sit with that person who has consumed those kinds of things. And, and, and Peter said, of course not. And then cracked a joke in Hebrew. And then they all high-fived each other because they're talking Hebrew. And they sat all together by themselves. Well, there's another knock at the door. Oh, God is so good at timing. And who is it? It's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, Paul comes in. It's 5.45 p.m. And he comes over to the tables and he sees a kosher table with all the Jewish boys and a non-kosher table with some pork chops and bacon and all of that and shrimp. It was delicious over there on the other side, right? Oh, all the Jews were eating falafels and all of this. Paul sees what's going on and sees red. And he goes over to the table and stands before Peter. And says, excuse me, you are a Jew. We all know that. We get that. But everybody doesn't know this. You don't live like a Jew. You don't live like a Jew. So what got into you suddenly? Suddenly, Mr. Kosher, what's going on? Why are you doing this and forcing the Gentiles to be subservient, second-class citizens sitting over there? In light of what you know about Christ, and his love for everybody and the blood he spilled to take away this kind of thing. There was silence. Nobody was eating their falafels anymore. They were listening. Fireworks were flying. And he, Paul let him have it. So time for Sunday school lesson, verses 15. He says, let me remind you, Peter. True, we were born with the advantage, born into Israel, and we had Old Testament and Judaism and the laws. We weren't idol worshiping pagans, ignorant of God's. Yes, we know that, but we learned something when the gospel came, verse 16. A big epiphany went off for the Jews. Guess what? We need to be saved exactly the same way as Gentiles. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're going to have to get saved the same way the prostitutes and the tax collectors. These Pharisees who have lived their whole lives separated. The word Pharisee means separated. Separated to do God's will. Memorize the entire Bible. Keep all the commands. He says, you're going to have to come the way a prostitute comes. Through the cross, through the blood of Christ. By faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. That's very humbling news. And Jesus had to tell the Pharisees, you know who's getting to heaven before you guys? To the Pharisees. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are getting the front row seats. And you guys 
who are Jews, who are related to the Messiah, are getting kicked out. Why? Because of your pride. Because you think you're better than everybody else. Look at those people over there. He said, they've got open hearts and they're getting saved. They're going to heaven. So Peter says, Paul says to Peter, knock this off. And he says there in verse 16, God, there is no other way. It's faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, period. Buddhists, Hindus, black, white, green, <laughs> male, female, good guys, and rapists, and thugs, and murderers. And the good guy all have to go the same way. And that stops some of the good guys. Good guys don't want to hear that. Good guys want to think they're better than the bad guys. Well, they might be better by comparison, but not enough to get to heaven. That's going to require somebody from heaven to come down and die for us. Let's finish up now. We'll be done with this last part. If now he gets complicated because he's Paul. He's going to now just, now it's the running theological commentary on justification by faith and why it's okay to be saved by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone. Because if you understand theologically what happens when you get saved, you're okay with grace alone because we're changed. So he says, if while we seek to be, verse 17, if we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For, the, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Famous verses 20 and 21. Then he's done with chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, it's, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if right, being right with God could be gained through keeping the law or being good, then Christ died for nothing, and there's chapter two, done. Now, a few comments, and we'll be done. It's not as complicated as it appears here. Paul is saying, really, as I said, if you understand what happens theologically to you, then you can understand grace alone is not an invitation to sin to take advantage of because you've been changed, right? That's what he's gonna say here. So, Number four, no, no cheap grace, okay? So verse 17, here's a paraphrase. Since Christ does not insist on good works as a condition for salvation, does that mean he's cool with sin? Then I guess it doesn't matter. He says, no, of course not, God forbid. Uh, does, he, does Christ promote or condone sin because he doesn't demand moral perfection? No, the answer is, is no. Verse 18 is interesting, very difficult to understand at first glance. He says, this is what it means. If I desire to go back, when he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, what he's meaning now is he burned the bridge of everything that was important to him as a Pharisee. Now, if I go back and try to recreate that, 
then I'm proving that I'm a lawbreaker, that I'm feeling like, I, I got to get busy. I got to do something for Jesus. I got to work. So he's saying all it proves is when you want to separate yourself and do your little good deeds and eat kosher and be better than everybody else is that you're proving that you're a lawbreaker. You sense that and you want to do something to justify yourself. He goes on, but I died to all of that. Try to be good nonsense. He says, we died to all of that. That's the old way. We died to, if I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. He says, no, we died with Christ. We were crucified, our old selves, with Christ on that cross. God raised us to new life. And now the life I live isn't really my own life because of the love and the sacrifice Jesus showed for me. He kind of had this uh, Copernican uh, principle happened to him. Per Copernicus is the man, the mathematician, astronomer in the 1500s who led the way with saying the sun is the center of the universe and we revolve around the sun. And so the, this theory is that we are not the center of the universe. And so what happened to Paul was he understood that he wasn't the center of the universe. And now the life that he lives is no longer his own, but he's indebted to live for Christ and out of his love because Christ loved him and gave himself so that he wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. So he says, why would I ever, verse 21, last verse, why would I ever set aside the grace of God? It doesn't make sense, does it? It, the only way a bad person can be saved is through the good God and the good work Christ did and just said, listen, you can't be good enough. Here's some grace for you. Just cry out and, and have a change of heart, repentance, faith. That'll save you. That'll be enough. I did what you could never do. He says, why would I lay that aside and then trust in myself? Because it doesn't make sense. Because if I could get right with God, righteousness could be gained through the law, that means by being good, then why did Christ die? The whole point of Christ dying says to a lost world, you cannot be good enough. You must depend on me. That's what he wants. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for these truths that do set our hearts free. We're so thankful to belong to you. Oh, Lord, there's so many ways that we get all messed up in our thinking, so weighed down condemnation and trying to be good enough and earn our way. Help us just to relax and enjoy your love and to let you do some wonderful good works in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 